What can psychedelics tell us about human psychology? Is microdosing LSD or other psychedelics really useful? Are you someone who could benefit from taking psychedelics? This week, research psychologist Harriet DeWitt on Nine Questions with Eric Oliver. I know nothing about psychedelics. <laughs> I, I know you don't. You know, we, we covered this last season. Well, you know, you're like most people. I, I think most people have not, they maybe have heard of this or they have some, you know, vague impressions mm-hmm. about psychedelics. And um, what is interesting about Harriet is that she is taking this from a very scientific perspective. So why don't yeah. you share with everyone a little bit more information about who Harriet is? Yeah, of course. Harriet DeWitt, PhD, is a professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Neuroscience at the University of Chicago. With you, Eric. With me. <laughs> She conducts research on the behavioral and neurobiological effects of psychoactive drugs in healthy human volunteers. She has studied a range of drugs, including alcohol, nicotine, stimulants, cannabis, and most recently, MDMA and LSD. Her studies aim to understand why people use drugs and how drugs affect behavior. Her research has been funded by the National Institute of Health for the past 40 years, and she has published over 300 papers. I mean, she's very impressive. <laughs> she's, she's super impressive. I saw her give a talk here on campus, and I thought, oh, my God, she is great. And uh, so I, I rang her up and I said, hey, do you want to come on the podcast? And she was like, great, yes. But she didn't really want to talk about herself. Um, so I said, okay, Fine. Um, let me ask you some questions about things that you have a lot of expertise on, which happen to be about psychedelics. And so for the past several decades, she's been running all of these experiments on people using LSD and other psychedelic drugs. And she's particularly interested in what these drugs can tell us about how our brain actually functions. Mm-hmm. And she is lovely, smart, uh, a delight to engage with. I'm really, really pleased to share this. She has so much to tell us about a lot of of what's going on with psychedelics. We're hearing a lot these days about things like microdosing, mm-hmm. psilocybin is now being legalized in several states or decriminalized. It's probably gonna be de- decriminalized here in Illinois pretty soon. So, and a lot of people I know who are pretty conventional people now are starting to take psychedelics. And so mm-hmm. I thought this would be a really great primer on what psychedelics do to our brains, um, what we should know if we're going to be interested in taking them, if we know people who are taking them, Mm. because there's so much misinformation out there about what psychedelics are, what they do. And I think Harriet will just do a great job of clarifying for us exactly what we should expect to know from psychedelics as a vehicle for self-exploration and self-knowledge. That's deep, man. Yeah. All right. So let's get started. Here's Harriet on Nine Questions with Eric Oliver. Harriet, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's great to see you. My pleasure. So let's get started with question one, which is uh, how did you get interested in this whole line of research? I have been studying effects of psychoactive drugs in human volunteers for close to 40 years. And for most of those years, I've been studying drugs that have some potential to be misused, and some of which are illicit and some of which are illicit. So amphetamine or Valium or alcohol or nicotine or THC. And then in the last 10 or so years, I got particularly interested in drugs that uh, are now kind of being repurposed for new purposes. So not so much, we don't think about them so much as drugs of abuse, but rather in some sense, kind of mind altering. So I, I made this kind of new foray into research about 10 years ago. And was there something in particular that sparked your interest, either in this broad area of research or in this particular? Very much so. We have standardized measures, and we know pretty much how the the familiar drugs, amphetamine-like drugs, sedative-like drugs, we we know how to measure their effects. People feel more stimulated, more energetic, more aroused, or they feel a little sleepy, a little dozy, and we can measure all those things. But now with this new category of drugs, they're affecting behavior in ways that we don't fully understand. And so they produce what appear to be new changes, new behavioral effects, new psychoactive effects, subjective effects that we don't really understand. And first of all, we'd like to characterize what the drugs do for the sake of you no know, understanding the drugs, but also the drugs can 
help us to understand how the brain is organized. And the brain, of course, is a, still a frontier. Uh, there's much we don't understand about human behavior and thought. And so drugs are, in a sense, a tool to be able to kind of look inside and see how the brain might be organized. And it, was there something about the fact that these drugs, uh, particularly psychedelic drugs or MDMA, and are we going to count MDMA as a psychedelic drug? Or I'd like to talk about MDMA. It's not typically considered a, a psychedelic drug, but uh-huh. that's actually the drug that I first got interested in. And the reason I got interested in is very, it's a very much like an amphetamine drug. So it has most of the same characteristics that an amphetamine, dextroamphetamine, methylphenidate, methamphetamine are all quite similar and with similar mechanisms of action and similar behavioral effects. MDMA is in that class, but in addition, it has this pro-social or empathogenic effect that seems to distinguish, set it aside from other uh, amphetamine-like drugs. And I was very interested in that. Uh, What is that? How do we measure it? Does it have to do with people's eye contact? Is it affecting eye contact? Is it affecting how you detect emotions in other people or how you react to other people's emotions? So I kind of set as a goal to kind of behaviorally define what's different about MDMA compared to other amphetamine-like drugs. So I was kind of all set up to measure drugs under blinded conditions. And I knew the effects of amphetamines very well. And so this was a kind of a small step, but a really interesting one to see what exactly the MDMA did. It's funny, as you're talking, it reminds me of Freud basically (laughs) saw psychopathology as a window into the human mind. And then this is kind of looking at our drugs of usage, our drugs of choice as now a window into certain aspects, at least of how emotional systems. Absolutely. Here we have a chemical, it's acting on a receptor, and we're giving it at a certain dose and at will, and somehow it's changing human experience, human behavior, physiology, all kinds of things. So it's going to give us a little bit of an idea if we artificially stimulate these systems that are really set up to handle other kinds of things, then what do they do? And so it's just one small piece of a much larger picture. And just so then uh, for any naive listeners that are out there, so how would you then differentiate, because we're going we're gonna to talk about both psychedelics and MDMA. So how would you differentiate MDMA from psychedelics or what is it that differentiates psychedelics then? You can differentiate on all kinds of levels. One is on the experiential level. So as I said, MDMA is very much an amphetamine-like drug and it has this added kind of pro-social component. Most psychedelic drugs don't have that stimulant-like effect, and they have their own unique set of effects with perceptual distortions and experiences, sensory and visual, and then also psychological feelings that are novel and very, very difficult to study, but interesting. I mean, again, you're giving a drug and, and it's ch- affecting something biologically and producing some kind of an experience. So that's a, it's like a tool for us to understand how the brain works. So the MDMA, the component, but neurobiologically, the component of MDMA that sets it apart is that it acts on serotonin receptors. We know that uh, amphetamines act strongly on dopamine and noradrenergic systems and to a lesser extent on serotonin systems. But MDMA is unique because it has a strong effect on serotonin systems. Now, the psychedelics are thought to act primarily by a specific serotonin receptor. So there are about 20 or so serotonin receptors and the, ser- and the psychedelics are acting on the 2A receptor in particular. And that's what seems to mediate these kind of uh, unique effects, psychoactive, psychedelic kind of effects. If you, the way we know that is if you give a drug, a different drug that blocks those receptors, then you completely block any experiential effects. So that's how we know that it acts on this particular receptor, and that's what mediates the, the psychedelic kinds of effects. So is the, the drug that then can block those serotonin inhibitions or the serotonin receptors, is that what they give someone if they're having, a, for example, a bad trip? Is that what <laughs> mollifies or is like a... Uh, you could. It's not available to be used for that reason, uh-huh. but you could. Okay. You could and... But it hasn't been used in that way. It's interesting. Yeah, I had a friend in college who basically did acid for the first time and then didn't come down really, and he started engaging in all kinds of like inappropriate behavior, and we were like, ah, and we basically had to take him to <laughs> to the, the clinic on campus, and I yeah. think they were they gave him I don't know this was you know 
35 years ago, they gave him some kind of medication and they snapped out of it. Uh, and I don't know exactly what it is they gave him. Uh, I'd be curious. I yeah, don't know yeah, what yeah. you could do to turn off that effect. They have some tools, you know, dopamine antagonists or benzodiazepines. I don't know what they would have used. So but I'm glad they were able to snap him out of it. Yeah, we all were. <laughs> <laughs> Question two. How exactly do you go about studying the effects of these drugs on people? Because I imagine it can be very complicated mm -hmm. in terms of there's so many different factors that would be affecting human behavior at any given moment. And then you're introducing this one drug component and you want to measure its effects. But then, of course, there are all these other things that are happening simultaneously. So how do you, if you could just talk us through a little bit about how do you how do you actually try to isolate the effects of these components that you're examining? You're right. It's very complicated what a drug can do to human behavior. And my interest is in the direct pharmacological effects of the drug. So my strategy is to control all the other sources of variability. So I try to control the context where the people get the drug. I try to control the people who are, are the participants in the study. So we only get healthy volunteers who don't have any psychiatric issues, don't have any drug use history. They have to be a certain body weight. They have to be a certain, they have to have high school education. So we try and make a really homogeneous population inclusion and exclusion criteria to minimize all that variability. Now, of course, that also has the downside that we can't generalize so well from what we do in our experiments, but it's kind of what we do to study the biological effect of the drug. The other thing we do is always administer the drug under double-blind conditions. So that means neither the experimenter who's administering the drug nor the participant who's in the study knows what they're getting at the time that they're getting. And not only do we not tell them at the time they're getting, but as they participate in the study, we don't set up any kind of expectations of a particular class of drug that they're going to get. So when they participate in our studies, we tell them you might get a stimulant or a tranquilizer or a hallucinogen or a cannabinoid or a placebo. So we give them, or alcohol, we give them a whole range of different categories of drugs to minimize expectancies. We know that somebody going into a study expecting to get a certain drug their expectancies will strongly influence how they respond to them. So if we give them, for example, THC, which is a very mild drug, and people have very strong expectations about what THC does in their normal environment because it's associated with smoke and smell and all kinds of distinctive things. If we give it under double-blind conditions, they it's not identifiable and they don't really like it very much. So we, we've done, lots of people have done, and we have done studies where we control expectancies. Wait, wait, can, can we just backtrack a little bit? So say you're just doing a study with THC, which is, for those of you who don't know, is the primary psychoactive active component in marijuana. Yeah. And you're telling people you may or may not be getting THC. The people who are getting THC and they don't know it are not, but say they, they have, they're otherwise accustomed to smoking pot they don't get the same kind of high. They don't they report don't the like same. It. They, they don't, don't like it. it. So one group of people, we told them you might get a placebo or a cannabinoid, THC, which is the active ingredient in cannabis, or a stimulant or a tranquilizer. The other group, we told them you might get a, a, a stimulant, a tranquilizer, an antiemetic, which is, you know, it's kind of marginal. It's a it's an anti-nausea drug, and yeah. that's actually what cannabis is. So we lab labeled it, a, like you could call it deception of a sort, but yeah, there's right. always gray areas there. Off-brand. <laughs> and uh, people who were not expecting to get uh, the active ingredient of cannabis did not like the effects and they didn't experience cannabis-like effects. That's, so that's fascinating. It is. It's just there's a very, very strong expectancy effect with cannabis. Okay. And then what are you measuring as your outcome variables here? So you've, you've given okay. them the treatment. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Good. We have three categories of variable that we measure. One is self-report measures. So measures of how they're feeling at any, we call it subjective experiences. So measures of how they're feeling, whether they're energetic, whether they like the drug, whether they feel a drug, that kind of thing. So we're very interested in those internal experiences. Then we also have a lot of measures that are behavioral measures, so tasks that measure either emotional function or cognitive function or memory function or impulsivity, those kinds of things. So behavioral tasks that we consider to be objective. Can, can you give me an example of emotional function? I'm curious how that would <laughs> One, work. A commonly used one is uh, looking at people's ability to detect emotions in other people's faces. Okay. So we show them pictures of uh, different emotions, their faces, 
and they're actually they're actually graded or morphed so you they can see a neutral face and then it, you you see little elements of the emotion gradually emerge over successive images and then we ask them to report when they recognize the emotion so say it starts with a neutral face and then it gets a little bit happy a little bit, uh -huh. little, 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 up up into about 20 steps or something like that so we want to know at, at what point they detect the emotion so it might be they might see happy faces angry faces fearful faces neutral faces something like that and and what do you do to I don't know how to describe this, but then cleanse the palate after you, you do that. Because I would imagine like if I'm on some sort of drug and then I start seeing, say, a picture of somebody with an unhappy face, it's going to start triggering in me a set of emotional responses. And then you're yeah. asking me to go and, you know, do a crossword puzzle. Um, you know, I'm, I'm going to be still echoing from yeah. that. From yeah. That effect there good point we do space the, ta the the trials apart as well as we can that's something that's a concern when we do brain imaging studies that we wanted to decline for this one it's really a simple detection task so you get a trial with these morphed faces and then you give you to press when you say it's when you identify the face and then some seconds later you get a next neutral face and it goes some other direction so there's not you i, I understand that it, you you think it might induce the emotion but in that particular task it's not something we're that concerned about it's more a, a cognitive task tell us when you detect the emotion or memory task do you remember emotional faces or yeah, so uh, those are the kinds of things we do but let me go back to another question you asked. you said what do we measure so i said subjective effects and then behavioral effects and then physiological effects so that's like heart rate blood pressure we do EEG and we do fMRI studies as well. So that tells you a little bit what, what's happening in the, a little bit of a window into what's happening in the brain. Question three. What are exactly our psychedelics? We talked about this a little bit and more specifically, what exactly it is that they're doing to your brain or what is it exactly that they're doing to your brain? Right. I think the main common feature of the psychedelic drugs that, that is the drugs that produce kind of trip, trippy kinds of effects is that they act as they, activate the serotonin to a receptor. And we know that because if you block that receptor, then you block the effects of the drug. So that's pretty well established. And so serotonin is a neurotransmitter that helps neurons fire and connect with one another. In, it does. In your brain. And it's in, been implicated in a whole range of different kind of functions in the brain. It's integrally involved in sleep, in eating, in depression, in it counters the effects of dopamine under some circumstances. It also depends on where you are in the brain. So it might serve one function in the front of the brain and it might serve a different function in the back of the brain. So we're putting drugs in there or we're talking about transmitters, but it's such a complicated machine that, yeah. And you said something earlier, which I had not come across. I wanted to make sure I got this correct, that there are different types of serotonin receptors. So there's not just one uniform serotonin receptor. Cause as you were describing that, I was like, that sounded like a nociceptor. Like there are, you know, that just as there are, are specific nerve receptors for particular kinds of stimuli or what we would call pain, certain, you know, they can differentiate different types of pain. Are there, is it there that level of specificity in terms of serotonin signals? Most neurotransmitters have multiple receptor subtypes. And they vary in all kinds of ways, how much of the neurotransmitter activates them, so their sensitivity, where they are in the brain, how they're connected to other systems. So there are, I think, 20 or so uh, serotonin receptors, and this is the one that is best known for effects of psychedelic drugs. Sure. So, so, the, the, yeah. so the system is a lot more complicated than just serotonin is flooding your brain. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. And more importantly, we know that this 2A system produces these effects, but we don't know what it does for the rest of normal brain function. I mean, it's playing some kind of role there in the brain, and, and we don't know exactly what that is in a larger sort of psychological sense. Okay. Now, there is a lot of stuff out there right now on the default mode network, and so there are a lot of people who are talking about how psychedelics disrupt the default mode network. And the default mode network is basically described as our sort of our default mode where our it's the regions of our brain that are activated when we're not doing something particular when we're not necessarily distracted by a specific task or concentrating on something and we're just there and we're sort of ruminating and our mind is wandering and so one of the ideas that i've seen that's out there is that oh psychedelics disrupt the default mode network and that's what causes in some sense ego death that a lot of people experience when they take large psychedelics is because the default mode network 
is being disrupted. Do you have anything to comment on that idea? Because that's that's a common one out there, and I, I don't really know. I haven't spoken to any scientists about yeah. this. Like, how do they how do they yeah. actually conceive of that? It depends on who you talk to. So, yes, the default mode network is basically a, like a roadway in your brain that's a, the well-traveled road in from one end of the brain to the other. And they study it. They can detect it by just having people sit quietly and they can detect that road. In the last maybe 20 or 15 years, people have studied, have thought that that might be kind of an idea, give an idea of who the person is. It might be associated with personality style or something like that. Whether it really is, whether you can translate that well-traveled road to a, a more psychological constructs, I'm not 100% sure. When you give a psychedelic drug, that brain imaging studies show that these well-traveled roads are totally disrupted and parts of the brain that normally are not connected to each other suddenly get form connection. So the, the, the ones that are well-traveled become disruptive and other ones kind of join in and and connect up to other things. So yes, they call that sort of entropy or or that that there's and you can see pictures of it. They're beautiful pictures of it where you see under normal circumstances it's a straight pattern and then and then it's chaos when you give the psychedelic drug. Now the trick though is to translate that into some psychological phenomenon. I mean to say it's uh what was the word you used ego ego something or ego other. death so ego yeah. death so that's a psychoanalytic concept that's something out of psychoanalysis it doesn't fit well with our understanding of the neurobiology of the brain so it's a it's kind of like a metaphor maybe it disturbs a sense of self whether that's ego death or we don't even know what sense of self is we don't know whether there's a brain mechanism or circuit that mediates sense of self the drugs are taking us into totally new territory interesting territory but new territory that were disturbing known pathways and structures and then that's somehow associated with new psychological experiences that we're trying to understand and so there are different mechanisms. So some people say, well, there, there you can see the, the openness. You can see the drug is making people more open. It's making them forget other past associations or something. But you can't really see that. All you can see is the connections of the brain. You, <laughs> you, it's, it's a big jump to take that to a, a, an interpretation. Okay, question four. What is the theory behind and the evidence for microdosing? Microdosing is something that where science is following the practice. The practice came up first. It didn't come out of science. Somehow, and I don't know who first came up with that idea to microdose that people, it got, it became very popular very quickly. And so it was, it was sort of discovered in the real world. And there are all these spectacular claims that it does so many things. It increases, improves creativity, improves mental function, decreases anxiety, decreases depression, uh, good for menopause, good for athletic performance, you know, just so many claims, it's hard to believe that they're all true. Yeah. People never microdose without some expectation that it's going to do something. So we don't know to what extent their expectancies are influencing their responses to the drug, but it's really popular. And so you have to think something might be maintaining that. It's unlikely that there's nothing there because so many people keep doing it. I mean, it could be, it could be that there's nothing there, but somehow it, that got me believing that there is probably something there. Okay. Well, we could say the same thing about homeopathy. I mean, <laughs> exactly. And if you ask me this, I would say the same thing about uh, cannabidiol. Uh -huh. I don't think there's really any evidence that cannabidiol, but that's a different subject, but similar, lots of hype, lots of sales, lots of publicity. Internet makes things go crazy. I mean, internet right. things just take off. On the other hand, the drug, we know the drug acts on the serotonin system. We know that SSRIs, antidepressant drugs, also act on the serotonin system. And when you take SSRIs, you don't experience any strong effect at first. It's sort of sub-threshold. It's sub, you don't experience anything for a long, long time. And then suddenly, gradually, your behavior is better. You feel a little better. You respond a little better. So, so it's conceivable that you can give a serotonin-like drug at a dose below the dose that where you'd feel anything, just like serotonin, just like SSRIs. That's kind of what I liken it to, that over time, something changes either chemically or must be chemically over time that improves your functioning in the world. Now, if it was a completely different mechanism of action and it didn't relate to antidepressants, I would have said, forget it. But I thought that was really interesting. 
and there are a couple of animal models of, of depression where low doses of LSD have antidepressant effects in an animal model. So that's also something that I would draw on as support for there maybe being something there. Now, is there any good clinical evidence, like some randomized controlled trials with microdosing over time and that Not shows yet. anything? Not yet. And so that's what I've started doing. And there are maybe two or three labs that have done that around the world. There have been a lot of studies with surveys, internet surveys, where they ask people, do you microdose? And they say yes. And then they say, do you like it? And they say yes. <laughs> <laughs> so th lots of studies like that. And yeah. then and, and one where they sort of randomized, tried to give the drug under blinded conditions. Th that study actually concluded that there was no effect. If the people didn't identify the active drug as LSD, then there was no effect. If they did identify it correctly as LSD, then they had some beneficial effects. So then they said, we can't consider those results because they're, we couldn't rule out expectancies. So you're kind of caught that <laughs> yeah. if you're... If you're too low, low a dose of microdosing, you might be below the dose that's effective. But if you're too high, then the expectancies kick in. So then right. you're open to criticism for that. It could be that you have to have a little bit of a something, some kind of feeling in order to get the therapeutic effects. But we don't even know, we don't have a clear sense of what that dose level is right now. Well, we know what people use and we know what they kind of swear by using. It's like between 10 and 20 micrograms. The dose that you use to have a trip is about 100 micrograms or even 200 micrograms. Mm -hmm. So we're in the range of about a tenth of the full dose. That seems to be still a pretty big gap between 10 and 100. Uh, like, so what if I'm at 40 or whatever? Then at you 70? would experience something. I would. Then so you I would, would experience know. something, okay. yeah. What we've found in our study, so we're one of a very few groups who have tried to do this under double-blind conditions. And what we find is that if they detect any drug effect, it's like a stimulant effect. It's like they feel more energetic, vigorous, aroused. It's, it looks just like amphetamine. So you could think there might be a kind of a little bit of a stimulant effect, and that might account for their feelings of well-being. We know that amphetamine was used in the past as an antidepressant. It's an effective antidepressant. It just can be abused. So, yeah. <laughs> so it, it might, and actually LSD, I said that the psychedelic effects are mediated by the serotonin 2A receptor, but LSD itself also acts on other neurotransmitters, including the dopamine system, and that would be consistent with this stimulant-like effect. It might have a little bit of a stimulant effect at these very low doses, and that might account for feelings of well-being. And is there a different sense between, say, psilocybin and LSD and DMT? I, I don't know if anyone's microdosing DMT, are they? I haven't heard of microdosing DMT. Micro, uh, DMT is cleared from the system very, very quickly. So unlike yeah. LSD, it can last as long as eight hours easily, and psilocybin is somewhere in between, more like three or four hours, something like that. In terms of subjective experiences, they're the same except for the time course and the, and the strength. But so if you give LSD and psilocybin at match doses and at sort of at the same time course, they look, they're not differentiable. DMT is a little different because it comes on so fast and then disappears so fast yeah. that I'm not sure they've Compare. I guess somebody has somebody has infused the DMT over a period, like over a thirty-minute period. So they put it intravenously at a low dose and then keep it for a long time. And uh -huh. then, but I think it looks very similar to LSD and psilocybin. Okay. Who would be a good candidate for trying psychedelics? This is just from life experience. I think I would make a big distinction between high dose psychedelics and low dose. So I, I think the microdosing is is harmless in most respects, unless unless you're really a troubled person to begin with. Uh, but I think that low dose is, is fairly safe. And LSD is fairly safe as a drug anyway. The high dose, I think you'd have to be, you have to have some, you have some grounding, some psychiatric stability in a sense. So you wouldn't want somebody who's unstable, who has sort of psychotic symptoms or something like that to use it. So in that sense, we want to, it, as these drugs emerge into the world, I think we want to protect some people who might have adverse effects. So sort of psychological stability, however that's defined. And then obviously curiosity and openness and willingness to kind of go with whatever happens. And then you'd sure want to have some kind of a guide or somebody nearby to kind of see them through it. So you ask who should use it? It sounds like a it's a human experience. It's a curious experience. Yeah, you know, it's it's funny as you were speaking, it, it occurred to me like culturally we still haven't figured out how to incorporate these drugs. Like there are some drugs that have been in our culture for thousands of years now, 
caffeine, alcohol, and we've, we've acculturated to them in a sense. And psychedelics, some cultures have had them, you know, it's like Native American cultures have had these for thousands of years and have been working with them. But LSD is what, only 80 years old since yeah. we discovered it. And yeah. it's also had these, you know, if you go through its role in the counterculture and then sort of these different stages. And I think we're still groping culturally to figure out these drugs have these really intriguing possibilities for helping us, you know, engage with our own human experience, but we haven't figured out exactly where they fit in within our cultural. It's a huge natural experiment. I mean, one route and the, the probably the safest route and the one that people are going through now is to develop the drugs as medications for psychiatric disorders. So they're testing the drugs for depression or anxiety or end of life anxiety. That wasn't actually a diagnosis before quitting drinking or something like that. So the FDA route is one way to go where the drug gets tested under blinded conditions and they check safety and things. But the other part of the use of self-exploration or spiritual development or something, we're in new territory. We, we saw how it could go wrong in the 60s and 70s, basically, that it became uncontrolled and, and there were adverse responses. So now in, in Oregon, there's, they're grappling with that. So they've made it legal to have your own supply of psilocybin. But, well, first of all, you have to work on what, what the supply is and is it pure and where are you getting it and who's making money from it. But then secondly, what regulations do you want? Do you want to limit the age? Do you want to limit the kind of people that can use it? Do you want to have a guide there? Do those guides have to have qualifications? So Oregon is struggling with that right now. So you, you, it can't just be a free-for-all on that side of things. On the other hand, we will have to see how that develops and under what kind of safety circumstance. So obviously the Native groups that in South America or, or even in America have very controlled context and rituals that go around the use and they and they revere it and they're and they're very respectful of it and but you know whether that can be sustained in the u.s is another question a question six what has research on psychedelics taught us or you uh about how the brain and mind works (laughs) huge question at one level, you can talk about it in, in neurobiology terms, so we can see what it does to brain function, EEG, you know, brain waves, and that kind of thing. That doesn't, it's not what excites me about the research. What excites me is that how can drugs activate certain neurotransmitters that are there in the brain and then produce these experiences, and that they must be acting on a structure that exists for some other purpose. One of the feelings that people report with hallucinogens or psychedelic, we're supposed to call them psychedelic, is a feeling of significance and of importance. And it's just, it pervades everybody's report. Like something happened, it was really phenomenal. And it's not so much what they saw or felt, but this feeling of importance itself Uh comes along with it. And you think, well, does that have a function in normal life? And you think about childbirth or being in an earthquake or something like that so there might actually I, this is this is completely my imagination it's not signed on based on on any science but you can imagine there being some brain structure that mediates this feeling of significance and the drug is getting right in there well or is that or, or the, the the other hypothesis that would come to my mind on that is just when you suddenly are now having novel brain circuitry or sort of new novel pathways are being activated within the brain when we get off our habituated kind of neural networks that that suddenly is a learning experience and it's and that in of itself becomes stimulating and seems significant maybe but it could just be weird and let me out of here uh-huh. you know there's no order in my world and it's not a natural jump that that feeling transformed is significant i mean it is it's I also think there's a level that nobody talks about that there's a level of stress and that stress can impart meaning on a situation. And the, the high doses are stressful. It's not, it doesn't always go well. It can go badly and everything's disruptive. And so that in itself. And so that's testable. Uh-huh. You could stress somebody and then see whether it has some of the same lasting experience. So that's one of the feelings. Then the other thing they report, people report is awe. So what is awe? What do we mean by that? And when do we say it in the natural world? We say awe and when we're in nature or, and what does it mean then? What do we think? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. It's, and then the word oneness. 
What do we mean by that? Uh-huh. Can, can we go back before we get to yes, the oneness? Yes. Can we go to awe a little bit? Yes. I mean, I was I was just thinking about this. Do animals experience awe, or is awe is something a distinctly human kind of? <laughs> I mean, we Great don't really question. know. We but, will never know because they can't report to us. We like to think it's distinctly human. On the other hand, we have brains that are very, very similar to other mammals. So it would be surprising if it suddenly emerged just with humans. I don't know. There's uh-huh. no way we can find out. It's such a subjective experience. There's no way we could test that in the animal. Now, do we know? I, I remember reading something about this, which was there was a set of, there was an area in the brain that if you can stimulate it, it's, it's basically you could stimulate a, a, a spiritual experience, you know, a la William James yeah, kind okay. of. Okay. Um, and do we know, this goes back to that sense that you were describing earlier of the significance of yeah. the experience or yeah. the awe. Yeah. Is, is it, is that possible a candidate for that? That's an area that's being stimulated, which generates that feeling. Uh, it's certainly possible. I'm not familiar with the study. It's vaguely familiar to uh-huh. me. It was a while ago, right? right. Yeah. yeah. And I don't know whether that's held up and whether people have tried it. They have now more sophisticated techniques for stimulating. They have, they can do, you know, magnetic stimulation or something. So that would be an interesting new direction of research. You know, you, there's also commonalities with the hallucinations that people have in psychosis. Those aren't exactly fun. They, they're not experienced as awe. They're experienced as true phenomenon around them. It's not does not associated with the feeling of, of that significance and awe. Yeah. Well, I, I so I, I distracted. So we were talking about awe, and then you were on to your next point. Oh, I was yeah. coming up with more adjectives that we have difficulty yeah. defining. So we don't even know, you know, the sense of awe, it's hard to measure. So in my work, we try and quantify feelings. So how anxious are you a little bit, a yeah, lot, and very, and awe, I'm not sure <laughs> it'd be a hard thing to measure. And I think you and I talked once before about measuring ineffability. That's another adjective that people use where they can't, it's not describable. So right. if it's not describable, how do you measure it? You know, so these are challenges that we come at. And then even openness. Openness is, again, something. Now, that come out, might come a little bit closer. You might feel, in some sense, it could. you could imagine, I'm waving my hands around here. You could imagine feeling constrained and versus open. You could imagine feeling limited in some sense in your view of the world and more open. But I think you could interpret that in a lot of different ways, too. It, it would be interesting. And people do look at religious experience as a model for and they try and measure religious experience and so and the, and there's lots of commonalities so they have they ad- administer the questionnaires of religious experience to people who are getting psychedelic drugs and there are lots of commonalities there so they're struggling to find words as well I think the drugs tell us that there are many experiences that we don't have words for i mean we as we grow up we label different kinds of emotions or what our parents tell us emotions are but it's almost as though we're overlaying words onto some feelings, and but we don't ever have really access to what the feelings really are or what the behavioral inclinations really are. So I think the drugs are interesting in that way because they might get us to experiences that are beyond the words that we're most used to. So I, I think of our emotions, we, we typically think of our emotions are only those things that we have words for. And I, I like to tell my students, well, what about all those experiences that you have that you don't have a, yeah. a word for, like yeah. being simultaneously attracted to someone repulsed by them at the same yeah. time? Yeah. And that's a common feeling. Yeah. You think maybe German would have a word for it, but, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, like think about all of those things that we don't even recognize Absolutely. as emotions because Absolutely. we don't have labels. And again, for them. it makes me think of the SSRIs, where it somehow the drug changes your emotional state. It's not changing exactly how you feel, but somehow it makes you. It makes people more kind of satisfied with their situation. So not only do we not have access to the emotions to identify, and we don't have words for them. But we know there are many factors that influence how we behave. So, you know, those experiments that you used to do with your teacher where you smiled if they stood in one corner and or answered questions if they stood in one corner and not if they stood in the other corner. And then without them being aware of it, they went and spent more time in that. So there's a, there's a lot of learned behavior that is sub sub aware. And, and so that opens a whole new door to what drugs might do as well. They might change those associations or change things that are, again, sub-aware and change your behavior. So 
What exactly is MDMA and how is it different from LSD or psilocybin? MDMA, first of all, has a very strong stimulant-like component. So it also acts on dope dopamine and norepinephrine and so it's it's mainly structurally a stimulant and then it has this serotonin component added on whereas the psychedelic drugs are really primarily acting on the serotonin receptor as part of mdma's action on this it has its action on serotonin on serotonin receptors it uh, stimulates the release of oxytocin and it turns out that the release of oxytocin is in, it's a huge increase so you can measure it in plasma levels so with many Hormones that act in the brain, you can only measure them in the brain, and that gets really difficult in humans. But in humans, if you give a dose of MDMA, you get a huge increase in oxytocin. That's a bonding hormone. It's a social hormone. It helps in mother-child interactions. It's increased when you have a sexual interaction. It fits with many of the psychological constructs that we associate with MDMA. So when people are in social situations, they use MDMA in raves and dance parties, and it makes them feel more connected with their partners there and makes them feel closer to them. In the psychotherapy situation, the increase in oxytocin might make the patient or the client feel more connected with their therapist. Now, how much of the effects of MDMA is attributable to the oxytocin release? We don't know. It could be that the serotonin itself plays an important role or the increase in serotonin plays an important role in this social component. And it could be that the oxytocin contributes to that. Unfortunately, the, we don't have a drug. The way to test it would be to give a drug that blocks the ox oxytocin receptor. And we don't have that. We can look at people who vary in the oxytocin re receptor gene. And then we see some differences, very small differences in responses to MDMA. But we don't know the answer to that question. To what extent is the effect of MDMA attributable to its effects on oxytocin versus uh, serotonin. So a few years ago, there was a, I forgot the guy's, re the researcher's name, but he came on campus, he had this big book about oxytocin, about it being sort of the, the love hormone and everything like that. And he gave this great talk and it was very compelling. And I was totally intrigued. So we got home and I was like, I want to try some oxytocin. So I go online and I was like, oh, you know, I, I want to get some oxytocin here. And there was a website that said oxytocin. And I was, and the, the best thing about the website was it was called, it was marketed as liquid trust. And the way they marketed it was say you're a businessman and you want to close that deal. All you do is basically slip one of your clients some of this liquid trust and they'll be in the palm of your hands. Yep. And so yep. I was like, okay, this is really funny, but maybe this is oxytocin. So I order some liquid trust. It comes in the mail and my wife Tia is looking at me. She was like, you are just out of your school. I was like, no, it's liquid trust. We'll see how it works. So, you know, I take a bunch of this liquid trust and I, I look at her and I'm saying, I don't feel anything. I don't feel anything. And I take some more of the liquid trust. I don't feel anything, anything. And then I went, I think I was talking to John Cassiopo on campus. I said, John, I, I, I tried this liquid trust. And he was like, Eric, you moron. Oxytocin is not legal in the United States. You were basically getting sugar water if you were lucky. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and then the whole the whole idea of liquid trust, the double meanings came kind of came through. And That's was, funny. Yeah, That's funny. Really That's great. a really good story. Yeah. That's a good story. Uh, actually, MDMA might very well serve that function if we gave it to people who had who were marginalized in some way. Most people who use MDMA out in the world also have strong expectations that it's, they're going to experience a certain kind of effect. Well, in our study, as I said, we don't, they're blinded, so they don't know what they're getting. So we had a participant who came in once, uh, maybe two years ago. And during the session, we sometimes asked them to write some comments. And this person wrote in really big, bold letters. He said, I, now I know what I have to do. I know what I have to do now. And he said, look me up on the internet. So... We looked him up. We were a little worried. We looked him up on the internet. Turned out he was the leader of a white supremacist group in Illinois. And so I said, you know, we need to go in and talk to him. <laughs> <laughs> if what he knows is that he has to go and be violent or something like that. So we went in. He said, he said, I've just had an epiphany. He said, he said, I don't really, I haven't really changed my beliefs about Jews and black people and that they shouldn't share our resources. But, you know, it isn't really important. What's important is interpersonal relationships, my relationship with my family, my relationship with people. He said, I've just realized that's what I should be concentrating on, love. This is, this is an experience where he, he had no idea what drug he was giving. Yeah, and this yeah. drug induced a, just a transformative experience. Now, he was also quite troubled because he had just been doxxed, which means 
you know, when you're a, a white supremacist, you, you keep your identity quiet. Yeah. And he had been revealed to, to his work associates, and I think he lost his job and to his family. And so he was struggling a lot with that. He was, you know, he felt badly about it. But it's interesting. He didn't really change his beliefs. Yeah. He just he sort of he sort of pivoted and thought, well, it's not that's not what's important. I thought it was just fantastic that that he should come to a conclusion like that just with the administration of a drug. This actually segues nicely to question number eight, which is, what has your work with MDMA taught you about relationships and love? Well, I'm always fascinated by the the intersection between what we think of as psychological components of human function and which ones are biological components of human function. And with drugs, we see how much they're intertwined. I mean, ultimately, even what we think of as psychological, emotional experiences, interpersonal experiences, have some biological basis. They're happening in the brain. And so somehow the drugs are able to modulate those experiences or enrich them or broaden them or we can identify new aspects of relationships. So so from that point of view, I think drugs are just fascinating as a means of understanding how we see ourselves and feel. Well, I, I'm, I'm curious about this. I One of the things I discuss in my class when I talk about to my students, I say, how do we cultivate intimacy with other people? I basically see intimacy as going through this kind of intimacy cycle, and it starts with some kind of mutuality with mm-hmm. another person. And then that mutuality invites some vulnerabilities to share. And then in response to the vulnerabilities comes affirmation. Um, and then the more that we find in that affirmation, more mutuality, uh, and then we we go deeper into the cycle. So there's more yeah. mutuality, more vulnerability, more affirmation. And what I'm curious about is I'm I suspect that that's what goes on when we develop intimacy with people. And I'm I'm wondering what there might be some neurophysiological component then that is also tracking what's happening with MDMA in, in that in some ways. I'm just going to tell you one more study that we've done recently that fascinated me. You know, there's a, a conversational procedure technique that you can use that people have written books about that make people fall in love with each other right right so it's basically consists of we have three 15 minute blocks of people people talking to somebody and under one condition it's all small talk and in the other condition it gets over those three 15 minute blocks it gets more and more personal and at the end of the conversation people feel they like their partner more they feel more liked they feel the conversation was more meaningful and just feel very much more connected and so we did that without any drug, and we measured oxytocin. Unfortunately, we didn't see any difference, but we, we might not have, it might not have been sensitive enough. Then we did MDMA with small talk only, with the small talk conversation only. And the MDMA had the same effect on the ratings afterwards as the deep conversation. They felt more connected. They oh, really? felt like, like they were <laughs> absolutely identical. It was fantastic. So that suggests that the MDMA, whether it's oxytocin or not, can have the same effect on uh, development of intimacy as this deeper. So that when the MDMA was all small talk. So, yeah, the, so right. it had the same consequence. As it's the, all just yeah. like, wow, this table is really nice. <laughs> <laughs> Last question, uh, which is what has all this research taught you about either yourself or just the self? It makes me question my own decision-making, my own feelings, my own view of the world, in a sense, and realize that it's it's narrow and uh, d- defined by my prior experience, and there are other directions to take things in. What's it taught me about myself? I, I think to be more open-minded about different ways of being and different and even talking about connectedness and about oxytocin and how that can just being more aware of your social interactions and and your own mood states for that matter. So I'm not sure I can give you a very deep answer to this. Okay. <laughs> Fine. <laughs> what would you say? Well, I mean, I can tell from my own experiences from having my initial experiences with psychedelics when I was 18, um, which were just once again, showed me that, wow, there was possibilities of consciousness that were beyond what I had thought. Like, you know, I had been very habituated in certain ways of thinking and suddenly being 
pulled out of those right. habituated patterns and right. the creative possibilities okay. were just astounding and okay. thinking about what consciousness is and how my consciousness gets compressed and delimited and in ways that are not necessarily always my choosing are probably mostly not my choosing. Mm -hmm. uh, and so this as a potent way of, of doing that. And so that then for me led me to wanting to explore meditation, which was a, a natural way of trying to push through that and a more gradual way of pushing through it. And I think there are a lot of interesting parallels uh, between the two. And then um, similarly, I think my experiences with MDMA were helping me overcome a lot of my own natural either inhibitions or anxieties about intimacy with other people. Yeah. Um, and um, some of the experiences that I've had on MDMA with close friends had lasting impacts in terms yeah. of our friendship. Yeah. Um, wow. And um, particularly with some of my male friends, I think, you know, with, okay. with men, it's oftentimes hard You're to more constrained in yeah, some ways in terms yeah. of, you know, expressing intimacy. And then I think the other part of it, which for me has been interesting is thinking about how do I understand my own emotional experience okay. um, and understanding my emotions as this uh, expression of this vitality of me as an energy system. Okay. Um, and, um, once again, I, I am an energy system that has order that's ordering in some ways, and then it has this vitality that's coming out. And um, the vitality is—is is there an optimal way to configure these? And I think for me, a lot of my the things that I struggle with in my ordinary life, which I think are unproductive emotions, a lot of anxieties, neuroses, um, are misalignments and poor habits of mind. And um, one thing that my experience with psychedelics has had me to do is giving me some perspective on that in the same way that meditation has given me some perspectives. And um, I think the, the interesting thing is as I've gotten older, whereas psychedelics were very, very revelatory when I was young, my more recent experiences with them have been less revelatory and it's meditation, which has kind of come in mm -hmm. and been is, has in some ways supplanted them. And not to say that they're, they're still great possibilities from there, but, I like to think that in some ways psychedelics put me on a path towards a kind of commitment towards an openness of experience and a a lifelong exploration of consciousness and my own conscious living um, that I have been able to supplement with other practices that I think are more readily sustainable, require more discipline and work, but um, kind of maybe la make something more of a lasting foundation. As you talk I see that so much of kind of human understanding goes beyond what we do in kind of biological or neurobiological research, that these, these experiences that you're describing and, and revelations that you're having are beyond the scope that we could measure with the kinds of studies that I do. They're very much a rich part of human experience, and they have to have some biological basis at some point, but I think we may never get to the point of being able to measure the experiences that you're describing from your meditation or from your psychedelic drug use and the impact that it has on your life. So it's great that there are different ways of seeing the world and different disciplines. To, to There's literature, there's art, and there's the kind of work that you do, and then well, there's the kind of work I do just looking at the receptor on the brain. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and somehow they all have to complement each other. Well, thank you so much for right. coming and sharing your it was great fun. knowledge. It was fun. Yeah, it's it was a really very interesting topic, and you're a great interviewer, so thank you so much. Okay. I learned from you. All right. <laughs>